We are back. As we promised at the top of the show, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, a trip we made to Los Angeles to speak with a very illustrious actor, a man who has not only been an actor, but a director, a producer, who has worked with some of the most famous names in Hollywood history. The actor is Norman Lloyd. If you're a Hitchcock fan, you know him as the title character in Hitchcock's 1941 movie, Saboteur. The ending of that movie, which takes place on the Statue of Liberty, is so uh, famous in film lore that uh, Universal Studios made it an attraction on their tour. Before that, he'd worked with Orson Welles in the celebrated Mercury Theater, that uh, that excellent recent movie, or at least I liked it, me and Orson Welles, uh, has a character playing, Norman Lloyd. It was a very famous production, and Mr. Lloyd's performance in it attracted quite a bit of notice. We got word from our friend Philip Proctor, he of the Firesign Theater, that he would be performing with Mr. Lloyd at the Wilshire Grand Hotel in Los Angeles last weekend in a recreation of Norman Corwin's 1945 radio drama, The Undecided Molecule. We were privileged on this program to interview Norman Corwin a few years back. Mr. Corwin is a a legend of old-time radio for the dramas he produced back in the 1940s. Uh, The original Undecided Molecule featured Groucho Marx, Vincent Price, Keenan Wynn, and Norman Lloyd. And uh, Mr. Corwin, who turned 101 this month, was being honored by the Association for Recorded Sound Collections, a group dedicated to preserving uh, our heritage in sound. So at the finale at their conference at the, at the Wilshire Grand, they revisited the undersided molecule with Norman Corwin in attendance sitting in the front row. Phil Proctor got the Groucho Marx role, and uh, Norman Lloyd got the probably the second best role in the, in the play, the same one he did, again, like we mentioned, back in 1945. Now, after working for Alfred Hitchcock as an actor, Norman Lloyd became a producer and director of his television program, during which he was able to use scripts from people like Ray Bradbury, whom we can't resist uh, playing, was also a Radio Parallax uh, a guest and one of our all-time favorites as well. And you probably know Norman Lloyd's face even if you don't know his name. Back in the 1980s on the, the excellent uh, television program St. Elsewhere, he, he played the kindly Dr. Auslander. And remarkably, after seven decades in show business, he's still working at age 96. I don't mind telling you that uh, at the performance uh, last Saturday, he was great. Now, unfortunately, although we were set up for an interview after this event, we experienced a, uh, a meltdown of the equipment. Thankfully... My good friend and associate uh, Bruce Bronstein was on hand with some backup equipment, and we were, we were able to get some pretty interesting stuff from Mr. Lloyd. For my part, I made an appointment to go back to Hollywood to uh, do a more extensive interview, which I'm sure is going to translate into some very fine radio. But we've got uh, 10 or 11 excellent minutes for you today, uh, based on my friend Bruce asking Mr. Lloyd about the directing styles of some of the, the famous people he worked with. We should know we've already mentioned Orson Welles and, and Alfred Hitchcock, but he also worked with Jean Renoir, whose rules of the game generally makes uh, the film critics list of maybe perhaps the second most well-regarded film in history after Orson Welles' Citizen Kane. And Mr. Lloyd was also employed by and was a personal friend of Charlie Chaplin. 
But how would you describe their styles as a director? How would they compare? I think Olsen, it was Olsen who said, you know, making movies, it, it's like an electric train. You learn it in about ten minutes, how to make a movie, and then the rest is you. Hitch was a master technician and a superb storyteller. If you were to ask him, are you working on a picture, Mr. Hitchcock? Oh, my next picture is Shadow of a Doubt. Oh, is it? Yes. Well, it's about a man. And he would proceed to tell it to you frame by frame. He comes in the door, he goes out the thing, he looks under the table, he finds behind there a thing, and he comes out, there's a gun, and so forth. Every shot you would see. And Hitch, in his person, reflected England very much of a certain period. And a kind of subjective thing about England <laughs> that really worked in regard to murders. <laughs> if you think about all those English writers who wrote about murders, and there were a lot of them, and it just smelled of London, Hitch was incarnate. He was the epitome of that. He was that world. He understood it. Even though his father was a poultry dealer, Dan Hitch used to love to go and sit in what was called the city, I think it's called, where all the rich people went, like Wall Street in London. And uh, I think that's the word. And uh, he would, as a kid, 19, dress in a black suit, as he did all his life, and uh, tie and shirt, and sit there and eat with them, thinking he was one of them, you see. But he had this strong visual quality, as well as this incredible talent to tell a story and a personal touch. And he also said, you want to make a movie? Can you tell it? Because if you can't tell it, you can't shoot it. If you can tell it, you can shoot it. This is a great lesson that I learned from him. Olsen brought theatricality to it. Theatricality. I mean... It was gothic, it was dark, it's extreme, but it was theater. And then, through uh, that wonderful cameraman, he had uh, the guy who did Citizen Kane. Greg Tolland. Greg Tolland, yeah. right. He had been Goldwyn's guy. He got into deep focus to ceilings and all this kind of thing, the look that was so brilliant. And he made his own kind of picture, which reflected his sense of the theatrical. He got Orson into all that, and it, it worked well. I don't have to tell you. Yeah, he said he could teach him everything you need about cinematography in four hours. That's right. That's yeah. Right. yeah. I just introduced in the Turner Classic Movies thing the other day, Citizen Kane. Why they asked me to, since I wasn't in the picture, which is another story, which I won't go into. I'll go into it. Not right now. <laughs> but oh, tell us all the Not right now. I gather you were pretty fed up with Wells, and when they talked about making a movie, you kind of were... Didn't Hausman throw a flaming tray at, at Orson Welles? He threw a sterno can. Yeah. Now, why did that happen? Hausman didn't throw it. Olsen threw it. I thought he, Hausman threw it. No, he threw it. At Hausman, because Hausman had made Julius Caesar by William Shakespeare at Metro with 
you know the cast, Lou Calhoun, Brando, James Mason, so forth. And they hadn't seen each other in 12 years, and in the restaurant he saw Hausman, who had made Julius Caesar, and he threw the sterno can at him and said, you stole my play. <laughs> Forget William Shakespeare, he was some bum. Who... <laughs> but this was, you know, you need that ego to be those people. Anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, that's all, all history now. Uh, and you're talking about other directors. So, Renoir was the great humanist, the great human being. You look at his pictures, you're not aware of staging and so forth and so on. Uh, although they have a beauty. That's another story, which about his relationship to his father, the great painter, Pierre-Auguste Renoir. However, the fact is, it was France. Really France, and so human. The humanity of his pictures, his actors, they almost is not acting. It's wonderful. No one can achieve what he did in that respect. And Chaplin, what can I say? Genius. Just genius. I mean, look at all those early pictures. They're breathtaking. Breathtaking. In every respect, story, acting, mm -hmm. point of view, you name it, human behavior. Ah! And no, he was the greatest actor in the world, and at one time was the most famous man in the world. Mm -hmm. In the world, man in the world. How did you meet him? Tennis court. Good. We had a mutual friend who brought me up there to play with him one day, and uh, he got me into the match. It was a doubles match. And uh, a friend brought me up a second time, and I was in awe of Charlie. And, uh, was he good? Uh, pretty good. Uh, his real problem was that he, out of vanity, I love Charlie. He's the most beautiful guy, but out of vanity, he wouldn't wear his glasses. So he, he couldn't come to the net. He would stay on the baseline all the time. Now, in doubles, you've got to be able to come up to the net. So he, he, that was his limitation, but he was pretty good. And uh, the thing was that uh, after a while, uh, one day I get a call to come and play singles with him. In those days, we played singles. So I came up and I played some singles and then we sat around his tennis house and chatted about the world, about theater, about movies. And after a while, some of this for a few weeks, one day he said, would you like to stay for dinner or would you stay for dinner? I said, yes, may I ask my wife? He said, oh, of course. And that's how my wife and Una got to be friends. And uh, then we became very good friends with Charlie. He and I owned a property together which we never made mm -hmm. because he was banned in the middle of the ocean. They wouldn't let him back in the country. What was the property? They shoot horses, don't they? Really? We owned it for 16 years. That's right. That's right. And I was going to direct it and Charlie was going to write it and he wanted the property for his son, Sidney, who would have been wonderful in it. And uh, Charlie knew all about those dance marathons. All about it. One day he said to me, uh, he said, 
was after ten, he said, you know, anything you want to do, let me know. I'll go half with you. I'll give you the money. And I did. They shoot horses. He said, okay, buy it. Don't tell them I'm your partner. <laughs> oh, listen, you had to get up pretty early in the morning. Fascinating chat, and I can tell you, I am really looking forward to spending more time with Mr. Lloyd down in Hollywood and uh, asking about some of these very famous people. I mean, I, I'm not a person from the theater. Chances are you're not either, dear listener, but uh, you have seen these movies, you've seen these television programs, and you certainly know a thing or two about Charlie Chaplin. So we'll hopefully air that the week after next. Let's round out this segment with some other media items. Apparently, it was 50 years ago last week that Newton Minow delivered one of the most electrifying speeches ever given by a bureaucrat. He was then the newly named head of the Federal Communications Commission under John F. Kennedy. He told a convention of the National Association of Broadcasters that television shows they produced were a waste of the public airways. The two-word phrase he used to describe television's landscape of westerns, private eye mysteries, formulaic comedies, and game shows was a vast wasteland. People are asking 50 years later if the medium is any better. Sounding off on that in the Chicago Tribune was Newton Minow himself, who said, yes it is. There's still plenty of junk on TV, but the medium now is far vaster than we could have imagined in 1961 and much of what's now available has far exceeded my most ambitious dreams. Whereas TV was once purely an entertainment medium catering to the lowest common denominator, we now have dozens of channels offering quality news and entertainment programming like CNN, PBS, HBO, Showtime, and H&E. Said Newton Minow, thanks to cable, we're in an era of choice. Backing up that view was Tim Brooks in Advertising Age, who said that when Minow denounced TV... There were only three networks with little room for experimentation or non-mainstream programming. Now, with the click of a remote, the average viewer can select from a world of options, from lowbrow reality TV like American Idol, to intelligent drama like Mad Men, to brilliant comedy like The Daily Show. Writing in the New York Times, uh, Virginia Heffernan gave Newton Minnows some, some credit with his scathing critique, noting that some broadcasters decided to prove him wrong, and they created a nightly news program, 60 Minutes. And PBS, with its lineup of Sesame Street and Frontline, was another effort to step things up a bit. Of course, I would note in, in an aside that uh, in answer to Newton Minow's criticism, the executive producer of Gilligan's Island, Mr. Sherwood Schwartz, deliberately named the boat in the TV show The Minnow. Or at least so TV legend has it. Chris, remember that stat at the top of the program? Federal government spends $2.7 million on national public radio versus $446 million to Jerry Falwell's Liberty University. This is a topic near and dear to our hearts. Newsweek noted that uh, in Chicago, Ira Glass, the host of This American Life, has used his own network's airwaves to challenge his bosses for being timid. Said Glass, public radio is being hit with a barrage of criticism that it's left-wing media, biased, reprehensible, and we're doing nothing to stand up for our brand. 
adding, they're not responding like a multimedia organization that's actually growing and super popular. I don't think NPR executives helped their cause by firing Juan Williams for making a few comments that uh, may have been poorly expressed, but, uh, you know, it was his right to say him, and they fired him from NPR. Of course, that was, of course the right-wingers in Congress just used that as an excuse. But Newsweek noted that with his future on the line, well, not really, NPR gets by on, uh, on viewer contributions more than it does federal funding, but uh, noted Newsweek, with his future on the line, NPR's decimated management has opted for quiet diplomacy rather than a full-throated defense of one of the few news organizations that is actually expanding and reaching an impressive 27 million listeners a week. Article notes that staffers flown in for a recent meeting in Washington groaned when executives said it would be too risky for them to aggressively defend NPR. Do you have an appropriate uh, sound effect for this, Mr. McMillan? These guys are being chickens over $2.7 million. Newsweek suggested they may want to get media training for Joyce Slocum, who took over on an interim basis after the firing of CEO Vivian Schiller in the wake of the Juan Williams fiasco. Said Slocum, the credibility of NPR's management has been damaged, but there's been zero damage to the credibility of our journalists. Of course, this was all made worse by the video sting conducted by conservative activist James O'Keefe, who got NPR's top fundraiser to denounce the Tea Party as Islamophobic and seriously racist at a luncheon. Now, we're talking about the words from a fundraiser. Words said in private to a guy who undoubtedly was trying to extract them from the person that said it. I mean, I don't know what's wrong over at NPR. Why don't they just say, okay, that was the opinion of one of our fundraisers, which this correspondent would hasten to add, are true. But no, we have Scott Simon, who hosts Weekend Edition Saturday, saying that every NPR journalist I know makes a real attempt to be fair and balanced. That's why Schiller's remarks, the guy who talked about being Islamophobic, were so repugnant to me. Ron Schiller seemed to be expressing an almost perfect caricature of a smug, elitist, toadying viewpoint. Anyway, the article notes that Republican Doug Lamborn of Colorado, who's leading the drive to defund NPR in the House, along with Jim DeMint in the, in the Senate, noted that that sting operation definitely hurt their cause. And notes while, while he concedes there's a lot of non-ideologic reporting on NPR, Lamborn asked whether subsidizing radio, quote, is a legitimate function of government. Unquote. He also asked, quote, we have to raise the question, was this what the founders envisioned? Unquote. No, Representative Lamborn, they did not envision this because radio hadn't been invented. You know, but they did have a pretty clear idea on the separation of church and state. So I don't know where $446 million going to Jerry Falwell's Liberty University fits into the equation. By the way, we still have not been able to do the follow-up we promised you last uh, election season about Jim DeMint and the stiff they ran against him in South Carolina in the Senate race, the guy that was the felon who did no campaigning, who, who gave no speeches, who basically came up with $10,000 to file and somehow managed to become the, uh, the Democratic Party nominee. That one doesn't seem to pass the smell test, but I digress. Writing on this same topic in the Sacramento News and Review was Katie Hanslick, described as a news intern, who said she thought it was unlikely that the latest Republican effort to defund NPR would succeed. Huh, I don't know about that. The article did quote uh, Capitol Public Radio head Rick Etchison, noting that uh, here in Sacramento, uh, they're aware of the threat but not immediately concerned, said Etchison, quote, 
we've always been conscious of the fact that it could happen someday, unquote. More than that, uh, this correspondent uh, has uh, no explanation for why, uh, uh, why my friends over at Capital Public Radio are not being a little more proactive about speaking out on this topic. I don't understand it. But uh, if they won't speak out on the topic, I, I'm more than happy to. And I know, dear listener, that's, that's what you love about us and this station. You can be sure that's a topic we're going to return to in the future. But let's, uh, let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We got plenty more. Don't go away. Just sit right back and you'll hear a tale, a tale of a fateful trip that started from this tropic port aboard this tiny ship. The mate was a mighty sailing man, the skipper brave and sure. Five passengers set sail that day for a three-hour tour, a three-hour tour. Started getting rough, the tiny ship was tossed. If not for the courage of the fearless crew, the middle would be lost. The middle would be lost. The ship's aground on the shore of this uncharted desert isle with Gilligan, the skipper, too. The millionaire and his wife, the movie star, and the 